Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the OIG Roundtable. We are one short, so maybe we're an OIG triangle today. Not sure. I guess it depends upon whether you're a mathematician or not. Uh, Matt Kachansky is out on a client deliverable, so he is missing for the day, but we'll do the best we can without him. So I've got my other two compadres. Uh, I've got uh, Wade McFall, who is one of the managers on our SIU team, retired ASAC, Assistant Special Agent in Charge from the LA Field Office and a member of our team here. And he got the memo to wear the advised t-shirt. So I like that. And Jason Eisengrind, retired senior leader from HHSOIG, and then the retired Western UPIC director and our special director in charge working on special projects for some of our clients relative to process improvement and things of that like uh, of that sort. So uh, today we're actually gonna talk a lot about some process improvement related things within the SIU. This is a timely topic. <clears throat> you know, a lot of people are seeing the press releases coming out regarding uh, cases that are resulting in trials and, and various civil settlements and the like. And so from the SIU perspective, you've got to think about your cases going all the way to the mat, as we like to call them, meaning uh, that the case is going to uh, some sort of administrative or criminal civil uh, litigation of some sort, whether that be a trial in front of a judge, whether it be a criminal or a civil trial, whether it be an administrative hearing in front of an administrative law judge or an ALJ, mediation, arbitration, anything of that sort, you've always got to be thinking in terms of the fact that the things that you do today will result in being discoverable as part of a litigation tomorrow. And an important, super important piece of that is going to be the documentation of findings that come about uh, from your investigation, but also collaterally documenting interviews and interactions with people that may have various facts or may have opinions or thoughts or whatever that may be. You've got to take notes on these things. You've got to write them up and you've got to do it in a timely manner. And part of that is not throwing the baby in the bathwater, meaning that you shouldn't be taking 50 pages of notes for a five minute interview. And at the same time, you shouldn't be taking two pages of notes for a three hour long interview. So there's a balance that comes about as a result of that. And you have to be able to understand what that balance is. You know, we've been doing a lot of training for SIUs on a combination of things, uh, process improvement, but also level setting investigators who come from different backgrounds and have different levels of experience. And we spend a lot of time talking about interviewing, interviewing techniques, documentation, writing up the interviews and the like. So it's an important piece of it. It can't go uh, to the wayside. And so, wait, I want to start with you because, you know, you're now probably in 30 plus years of having been in the healthcare fraud, waste, abuse space. You've probably uh, done thousands upon thousands of interviews like we all have who've been in this space. And, you know, one of the things that you brought up when we were talking about uh, the topic for today is sort of this premise of minimum necessary, meaning that you got to make sure that you're hitting the high points. And what is the minimum necessary information? We're not talking about page length or time or any of that, because that's all going to be relative. Um, so we're talking about what is the minimum necessary required in an interview. So let's talk about, and it doesn't really matter if you're an OIG agent, if you're an SIU investigator, minimum necessary is still an important piece of the puzzle because it's all about capturing the facts as you understood them at the time. So let's talk about that. What do you mean by that? And, and what are what are minimum necessary when it comes to that? Well, I think that I think minimum necessary comes into play on a number of things beyond just interviews, but starting with interviews, I would say that I tended to not not put everything in there. Like you say, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. However, I always um, lean towards 
more more is better. You can always, especially when you're writing the interview, you can you can include everything from the notes and then you can edit it out to you know decide what's important to prove the the elements of the crime and, and what isn't. So you can kind of downsize it a little bit. But I think, and I don't want to get too far off here, but I think the minimum necessary issue that I see being an issue with some SIUs is not necessarily just with the interview notes, but with like providing information to a provider or to law enforcement. And it comes to mind is like claims data, you know, spreadsheets. Obviously, if you're sending something to a provider and you're just looking for medical records, they don't need the, you know, 20 some columns of information that are included in that claims data spreadsheet. They pretty much just need like a name, a date of service, and either a date of birth or um, a member number. And that's pretty much all they need to be able to provide you with that. Um, however, when you get to the point where you're referring to law enforcement, I'm, I've seen where you get subpoenaed and basically they're requesting your case file. They want, they want pretty much everything. I know for myself, if I would, uh, be subpoenaing records. I want I want everything and I'll determine what I need and what I don't need. What I don't need is like a, an SIU manager who maybe doesn't have law enforcement experience to look at something and say, well, we're subpoenaing, we're getting subpoenaed for this, but I don't think they need, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's like, let the law enforcement officer, the agent or the detective, whatever, let them determine what they need to prove their case and not you know on the front end like so everything should be this is not a case for a minimum necessary in my opinion so to that extent i typically will talk to whoever is we know that we're going to get a subpoena ahead of time and i talk with them to make sure that they include language i know it has to have some specificity you can't just say any and all documents related to the the investigation but I talk to them and make sure that they word it in such a way that I can include more than what others might think is is um, appropriate as minimum necessary. So give them everything that they need with the with the intention that you want them to be able to pick up where you left off on your referral. And if you just give them a minimum necessary amount, they may look at it and say, I, I don't really know what the the goal of this investigation was or what we're trying to prove here. So I've gone to the extent of providing not only the claims data, just the raw data, but I'll do some different sorts and filters. Yes, it's things that they could obviously do, but I think it it helps tell the picture of the investigation up front if they have a couple different variations and they can see, they can kind of see what we were going after and what we were trying to prove. So again, going back to the minimum necessary, I, I know there's um Areas where we're talking about PII or PHI, where we we want to minimize that. But when it comes to referrals to law enforcement, I think the minimum necessary is um, kind of misunderstood um, because a lot of the people making those decisions maybe don't have the law enforcement background. This is another again another um, aspect we're having like a LEO liaison would be helpful because you have somebody. Um, maybe advising the, the managers as to what law enforcement officer is looking for on the other end. And that's that's not going to be a minimum necessary subset of the documents. It's going to be 
give me everything you have and I'll determine what I need and what I don't need. Yeah, and let's tie that back to, you know, even just the overall documentation of something like an interview or what have you, where if you are going to speak to somebody and say, hey, I have a request for records I'm going to be sending you, that, you know, at the end of the day, you should be documenting that interaction with that person and then cross-referencing if you send them a file of claims, cross-referencing, you know, at the conclusion of the call, the, you know, investigator, however you're terming yourself, if you're speaking in first person or third person, that, you know, at the conclusion of this call, uh, you know, I sent them file number 123XYZ dated such and such, right, for completeness. It's a little bit like what I say is if you're working on an investigation and you go to a website and you look at a website or you access a document online, that you should be tracking when you access it, right? So, you know, here at Advise, we do a lot of expert reports for clients on things. And oftentimes it requires having to look at websites or databases of information. Maybe I'm looking at an LCD, uh, you know, an NCD, a CMS policy. It's important to be able to reference the last time you looked at it because it's often possible that when you looked at it versus when someone reads it or when there's action taken, that there's been a change to that document, right? If you have something that's in litigation and you reference an NCD, you should reference in that NCD the day that you ex- accessed it because three years from now, that NCD may be different. It may have changed. It may lo- no longer be valid. And so therefore you have to be able to reference that you know when you looked at it so that there's a point in time to say that the source of truth in this document is at the time that I looked at it. So, you know, the documentation piece and interviews and all that other stuff, it all really does come in as a collective. And that minimum necessary is what's the minimum necessary information to convey the point you're trying to make to that person or to whoever your, your audience is. So it's an important piece. So Jason, I want to go to you because now you know, it's not just the documentation of an interview. It's not just the documentation of the workflow and all of that, but it's also relative to uh, creating a policy or a standard operating procedure on what the on on things like document retention. You know, uh, taking notes, right? So at the at the OIG where we were in the Office of Investigations, there was something that was known as the OIPPM, the Office of Investigations Policy and Procedures Manual. And it outlined all of the things that were basically out there for an agent to do. And there was a whole section on interviews and notes and documentation. And one of those requirements is that interviews be reduced to an interview report within five business days of the interview taking place. And obviously, there are some caveats if you were to go on vacation or something like that. But there have to be some standards set forth within an SIU on when you interview someone, how do you memorialize that interview? And then collaterally, what do you do with that memorialization? And if you're missing that, you're potentially missing some uh, evidentiary trail that could come back and bite you later on. Absolutely. So Uh, We are talking about investigators and investigations, and I believe that to be a profession. So we are not, you know, going to be able to create an interview template and you can check boxes and, you know, have, you know, canned language and things of that nature. 
but certainly in the policies and procedures, there would be some very strong uh, language about uh, what is expected out of a out of an interview report. At the top of the list is that 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 report is contemporaneous with the the revelation of that information. That five days that sounds like a, a, a five business days sounds like a reasonable number. Uh, I I would say that. Uh, the other thing is that you want to have a report that is the substance of the activity or the information that was discovered. So this is not an opportunity for people to render opinions, for there to be assessments made as a, you know, uh, based on uh, the information uh, obtained. It, it's all really just about what was provided, and it's not uh, really in the best interest with some rare exceptions in my opinion uh to have quotations in in a report because again it's a substantive report uh you know of course if there's a, an admission or a confession during it you know there all kinds of things can happen that would would change a rule like that but generally speaking uh you know uh, you want to have um a style frankly that is uh, that facilitates presenting that information. So for instance, no one wants to read a report that every sentence is he said or she said, and then you know that just repeated over and over again. So create bullet points. You know, the following information was obtained in substance by this investigator on this date. And then you can uh, have uh, bullets that um, articulate that that substance that was uh, obtained. The 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 other thing is where is this information stored? So you know, truth be known, we we had a brief discussion uh, before the call starts as we normally do, and it is interesting. Like now, you know, in this virtual world, wh where are we going to keep notes? Because this is you know, there's still the concept of best evidence in in any kind of proceeding, and best evidence is generally going to be that those notes that were taken on that day uh the reality is though maybe they can be scanned at this point so i would advise uh the you know the siu assuming that we're speaking to a lot of siu's on on these venues and uh speak with your your stakeholders speak to the states if you're a, a you know um, a medicaid uh health plan and find out what is their anticipation of where those notes would be kept and in what order. But, you know, bottom line is there'll be broad uh, but important articulation of these policies. And then as far as what's in the report, you know, uh, Eric, Reid, and I came from an environment where everything that got into a case file was initialed off by a supervisory special agent. Is that my comfort zone? Absolutely. The reality is though, is that practical in the world of an SIU? It really depends, uh, you know, and, and we'd have to really get into the details of what uh, the SIU is investigating and, you know, what their capacity is to, to review things. But nonetheless, in a fire review, looking at uh, the the quality of the writing of the invest excuse me of the investigators super important and I'll I know I've 
used this example before. So I'll never forget this FBI agent that uh, is a co-case agent uh, on a case that I was working. And he was really a well-educated um, individual, CPA, very accurate. And then in his interview report, he wrote uh, that um, uh, after being pushed several times, so-and-so then reported the following in substance. Well, <laughs> it really didn't matter what the information was on the stand. There was at least 45 minutes about, well, how hard was he pushed? Was he knocked down? And of course, he would. there was no physical contact whatsoever. But, you know, when you have a strong case, uh, the defense is going to use whatever it can to pick away at the, the the quality of the information being presented. So, you know, there's there's a lot of value to a second set of eyes looking at it and say, do you really want to say that the person was pushed on this issue? So I'll leave it right. there. Right. Well, and since Matt's not here, I'll give myself the last word for, for a change. But, you know, I remember that story, Jason, uh, well, and you know, a collateral story that I was sort of sharing beforehand was, you know, I had an instance where uh, we conducted an arrest of someone and in post-arrest, they waived Miranda and proceeded to provide some very strong information and actionable intelligence regarding their role and others in a very large kickback scheme involving about 30 doctors and MRI kickbacks. Well, you know, I was busy leading the interview of the arrestee who is now cooperating and so one of the other agents at the office said, well, I'll take the notes for you. And they took probably 30 or 40, 50 pages of notes um, that started in the car on the drive to the office and continued on for hours. There were about 50 pages of notes. And the agent that took the notes was going on vacation. And so I said, well, give me the notes. I'll write them up. And that was the one and only time that I ever did that in my entire career uh, and and I lived to, I won't say regret it, but I lived to suffer <laughs> because um, I wrote up the interview report and there was one, one, handwritten, one handwritten line that I read one way and typed up the notes with that one line that way. And during trial, I was on the stand testifying and those notes and the, and the, and the interview report were brought in and the defense attorney spent probably 20 minutes or a half an hour similar fashion querying me about literally one or two words in a sentence and what the meaning of that was. And, you know, I interpreted it one way. It could have probably been interpreted three or four ways. It didn't actually change the thrust of 50 pages and five hours of a debriefing or whatever it was, but it was something for a defense attorney to hang their hat on. So, you know, the moral of that story and generally speaking is the rule of thumb. And we teach this when we teach interviewing and documenting interviews in the write-ups is, the person who takes the notes writes the interview report. Um, the person that takes the notes is the only person that can read their handwriting, understand what they're saying, and make it uh, cognizant to everything else around them. So taking notes and giving them to someone who may not have understood what their import of the information was or their understanding of that information was, there's a loss in translation. So it's very important that you keep that consistency throughout. And I said, again, during our SIU training uh, for, for SIU plans, we go over this pretty extensively. We talk about um, sort of the method of doing interviews, whether it be in person, whether it be virtual, 
on something like Teams or Zoom or something like that, or even Telephonic, we go over some techniques for conducting those interviews, as well as uh, sort of some of those methodologies for writing up the interview, some in substance versus quoting and things of that sort, because you don't want to get caught, uh, you know, in a situation. The least of which is if you take notes, you should write those notes up into an interview report uh, within days. You shouldn't wait months. I've seen agents on the stand get grilled for uh, inordinate amounts of time because the day that they wrote the interview report up was months or years after the notes had been taken and taken. And so therefore, when you lose that contemporaneous piece of it, you also lose the ability to have better recall, right? Because remember, an interview report is some in substance. You may have recollection of things that occurred in the interview that you don't have a note about. And so it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean it did happen. You should just be able to memorialize it. And the closer in time that you memorialize that interview report to the time that you did the interview, uh, and the closer that those notes match the date of the interview report, the less that there is uh, from a defense perspective to be able to attack that. You know, and that's one of the things that we look at. If you see that notes have been written up uh, and the interview was written, you know, weeks, if not months later, uh, there's certainly a memory lapse that occurs you know, between those. So, yeah, minimum necessary from a documentation perspective, minimum necessary from a disclosure and investigative perspective, uh, all the way through to you know, what a policy and procedure should look like. These are all pieces that help to make uh, an SIU more efficient, more effective. Um, and as always, and Wade, you brought this up, those conversations with law enforcement, what does your what does your agency that you refer your cases to, what do they want as far as documentation and really things like notes? Is there a, is there a rule from the state attorney general's office on what should be maintained? You know, in New Jersey, the, the attorney general's office said that the, you know, ultimately the source of truth for cases that Mufuku worked uh, was the interview report, not the notes. The notes were destroyed. Uh, you know, whereas we, we would never have destroyed the notes until after the case was closed. So there's a lot of divergence in that. And, you know, case law is going to prevail. State rules are going to prevail. Attorney general guidelines may prevail. And if you're working on a case involving OIG, where that's your primary referral source or FBI for your commercial federal cases, you, know, you want to understand, like, what do they want? Do they want you to keep those notes? So there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle. They're not, I would say, inherently complicated, but those pieces of the puzzle are things you need to know. And it really just takes a little bit of research and making sure that your SOPs and your policies are all uh, are all up to date and consistent across that SIU. So as always, guys, a lot of information. We continue to talk about this. Policy and procedures an important piece of an SIU, diverting from those policy and procedures are the things that create failures in the system uh, and help to work against that efficiency and not let the SIU work in uh, in a well-oiled manner. So good stuff as always. It's always good seeing you. Uh, Wade, I'm glad you saw the memo on wearing the appropriate attire for today's podcast, so that's good. <clears throat> as always, everybody, thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the OIG Roundtable. You can get our podcast in your newsletter, which comes to your inbox every Friday afternoon. Send us an email at hello at advise, Keep an eye out for, for our newsletter if you are getting it. Tune in in a couple of weeks. We'll be doing a LinkedIn Live where we're going to be talking about uh, lead generation and the importance of having strong leads within the SIU and equally important, being able to manage leads that are coming in from proactive data analytics uh, and being able to vet those leads properly. So important stuff in that. We look forward to seeing you on the next roundtable and at our LinkedIn Live in February. Have a great day, everybody.